in here with us for the, uh, the reading of God's Word uh, this morning, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 5. We're going to be spending our time focusing in on a really terrifying story, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Do you know what happened to them? Uh, they, in the midst of uh, being a part of the early church, uh, decided that they were going to sell a field and not give all of the proceeds uh, into the apostles. And when they held that back, they were struck dead on the spot. They breathed their last. They fell at the apostles' feet. And if you're anything like me, uh, that is a terrifying story. What is that story about? It's not as though we read that story and immediately know exactly what happened, what was the Holy Spirit doing in the midst of this. Uh, we're going to be studying that this morning, but I think it's okay for us actually to just confess that that's a pretty terrifying story. Uh, it's terrifying to me. If it's not to you, I'm glad. Uh, but it is terrifying to me. And I think that we even get some idea that it's okay for it to be terrifying. Look at verse 5 and verse 11. It says that all who heard about what happened to Ananias and Sapphira were struck with great fear. It says specifically, great fear came upon all who heard of it. And I'm wondering why. Why is it that when we hear this story, when we read this story, that there's some amount of terror that enters into our hearts? And I've been grappling with that over the last week, and here's what I think. I think that it's the fear of exposure. What was happening is, is that there was some sin that was in Ananias and Sapphira that somehow pings our own heart, and we go, oh man, like I'm capable of that same kind of sin, and they were struck dead for it, and they were exposed. They were exposed. Their sin was exposed before all people's. They're even written into the annals of history, into the Scripture. What they did was exposed. From the fall, we see that the exposure of our sin is a really fearful thing. Adam and Eve tried to cover their nakedness after sinning against God. God comes into the garden and says, where are you guys? And they've been covering themselves. They're hiding from God because they're afraid of their nakedness, their exposure. Uh, some of this, I mean, even just to make it more uh, like today, uh, do you have those dreams of like nakedness? Like, I don't know, maybe I'm the weirdo. I've heard of other people having these kinds of dreams where you're naked in public and there's just this, you wake up with the dread of being exposed in front of a whole bunch of people. I wonder if that doesn't like reach its way, like that the, uh, the place that that kind of comes from is that part of our hearts that really is afraid of being exposed I wonder if you've ever said the wrong thing in a group of people that you love or really want to respect. It just, it came out wrong, or you said something that you shouldn't, ha uh, that you shouldn't have, or maybe you didn't say something that you should have, and you, like, literally, like, years later, remember the terror of what you did or didn't say, and it still, like, quickens your pace. I know that for, for my wife and I, one of the, like, things that is really hard for us is actually letting go of like past conversations. I should have done this. I should have said this. I looked the fool. There's something about that exposure that I think really runs deep inside of us. It sticks with you. It runs in your mind. Personally, uh, I grew up uh, in, in like this really kind of tight-knit community. It was kind of forced. It wasn't a cult. My uh, parent, my mom worked for Lockheed Martin, and we went overseas. We literally lived in a compound. 
It wasn't like a, like a compound where we all chose to do it, not a cult thing. We just lived in this expat community that was like surrounded by walls. So we knew people pretty well. Those were the other people that spoke English. And so we got to know one another really well. And I remember the day that my mom came to me and said, hey, one of your uh, friend's uh, grandmothers uh, says that you're a storyteller. Now, for those of us who did not grow up in the South, uh, storytelling is like a colloquial for like liar, okay? That's what it means. Like uh, Miss Applewhite came to my mom and was like, Chris has a lying problem, which I did and I do. Like I have this thing inside of me that is just, uh, but what I remember the most from that experience, like to this day, that may have been one of the most important conversations that I ever had in my life because my mom was able to come to me and say, hey, you've been exposed as a liar. You've got something in your heart. And I remember, even as what could not have been more than a seven-year-old, being terrified that I had been found out. I wonder if you have a similar story where you've been exposed. A few weeks ago, I actually uh, was on this committee, and we were trying to decide who was going to chair the committee, and I, I had a person that I, frankly, wanted to chair the committee. I, I really respect him. I've known him since high school. He was really a, a little bit older than I was, and in the midst of telling the group about like uh, this guy, I, I said something about him. I, I said, you know, he's brilliant. I remember when he was at TCU, he got such and such a grade on the LSAT, and uh, people were like, wow, that's very impressive and everything. I was like, I know, it's really impressive. He should chair our committee, uh, which was not a terrifying thing until like about a week later, he called me and he was like, hey, did you tell this committee that I made like this great? I was like, yeah, I just remember as a high schooler being really impressed by that. And he was like, well, it'd be really great, but that's not true. And I just remember go, like in my, like that just fear of like, oh my gosh, this is like a group of people that I really respect and that I want to respect me. And I've just lied to them like inadvertently, but like more than a social faux pas. Like I told people that this guy had done something that he hadn't done. I, was, I felt exposed. I felt vulnerable in some kind of way. Why is it that we fear exposure? Why is it that maybe even today is maybe a more difficult season for that feeling of vulnerability? I, I almost feel like cancel culture Cancel culture is like gamed to like magnify these fears. Do you know what cancel culture is? It's like uh, people that go back and find something that you say and they uh, find a way to uh, take your job, take your credibility, take lots of different things. It's this like game that people are playing. It's like, it's not that like uh, Orwell became like reality and like, you know, nonfiction. It's like a democratized it's almost like a, a, a democratized thought police of some sort. And we're doing it to one another. It's kind of a fearful thing. It's one of the reasons why I'm not on social media. I don't want to take part in it. I don't want to be, you know, outed for something that I said back when I was like 19. That seems terrifying. But we've kind of done that. Sasha Barra Cohen, do you know him? He's the guy that built a career on exposing people through these super crass characters like Borat. They've got another installment of that coming up over the next week. I don't recommend it. Uh, but it's like one of the reasons why people are even interested in it. They're interested in the car crash. We're almost interested in who's going to be exposed. 
Who's going to be the one that's outed this time? What are they going to be outed for? Can I jump on the bandwagon of making sure that that person is appropriately publicly shamed? It's like really evil and wicked, and all of it is happening in this economy of exposure. Why do we fear exposure? It's because at the core, everyone wants to have a good reputation wants to have responsibility for something, wants to have some level of control in some measure over their world, over their lives. In fact, maybe even more, uh, more precisely put, instead of uh, reputation, people want prestige. Maybe instead of responsibility, they kind of want authority. Maybe instead of uh, control, they really want power in some measure, but that kind of vulnerability that kind of vulnerability detracts from those things that we want. So it causes fear. It causes fear. Man's fear of exposure points to something really deep inside of the human heart, and that is our desire for glory. It doesn't matter how humble like your desires for glory are. Every person in this room seeks glory. Human beings, by nature, are glory seekers. We're actually going to talk quite, about, uh, quite a bit about that today. We are glory seekers. And when glory seekers are exposed for their inglorious qualities, we find that it is very costly. Look at Ananias and Sapphira again. Ananias and Sapphira's sin interrupts an extraordinary time in church history. So Ananias and Sapphira didn't just decide to do this in a vacuum. We kind of artificially, because we're preaching through texts of the Bible, like drop into the story, and if you just take it on its own, maybe it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but what we need to know is that Ananias and Sapphira's sin interrupts an extraordinary time in human history. Look, look just before this beginning of chapter uh, 5, verse 32, we see that the church is not only growing, it's thriving. It's not only thriving, it's experiencing an extraordinary amount of Holy Spirit empowerment. There are some amazing things. Read with me, verse 32. It says, now the full number, now that, that's going to be an important thing, the full number, all of them, Everybody who was coming into the church, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that anything, any of the things that belonged to him was his own. If you skip a little bit further, it says, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Notice the all statements there. Everyone was really included in this. That's what makes it like super extraordinary. That's how we know that it's actually something that is spirit-empowered is because all of them were doing it. Everybody was sharing with one another. There were these great miraculous signs that were being done in the midst of this community that was being empowered by the Spirit. This was an extraordinary time and great grace. Great grace, I love that. Great grace was upon everyone. The community of Jesus' followers continued to live in the same extreme grace that we studied about a few chapters ago, back in Acts. You remember when uh, the uh, apostles went out and they preached 
the glory of Jesus and his resurrection from the grave. And then all of the disciples, all of these new disciples, thousands upon thousands of them, day by day were coming in and they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, living together as one being unified into this group of people that was, uh, that was looking more and more every day like their Savior Jesus. This was extraordinary. And here we see the same thing is happening. They devoted themselves to the gospel testimony of the apostles. If you look back at verse 32, it's a, what does it say that they were uh, doing? I'm sorry, the one uh, verse down, it says that the testimony that the apostles were giving were of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That's what they were devoting themselves to, and everything changed. It says this, it says there was not a needy person among them. That's pretty crazy. Now, listen to what it didn't say. It didn't say that there weren't rich people. There were. Those people were changed in their heart by this resurrection testimony, and they were selling things like their land and their home, and they were coming, and they weren't just dispersing it the way that they wanted to in order to gain prestige and uh, give it to this person but not that person. They came and gave it to the apostles because they were demonstrating essentially, uh, this is not mine. And I don't need to have the control and power to give it to whom I will please. I'm going to give it to the apostles because I trust them in this testimony that that will be given to the appropriate people. They were experiencing a lot of graciousness in the selling of these things. And in verse 36, we get a picture of this in the person of Joseph. Thus, Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite. That means that he was a Jew. He was of the house of Levi. He was uh, from the priestly tribe. He was a native of Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This was a generous and selfless act of love something that only the, uh, the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus could have possibly done. What, what would explain a person giving, uh, let, let's be honest, uh, for, for Barnabas, for, for Joseph at this time, this was likely a piece of land that he inherited. So he's taking something that maybe had been in his family uh, for a few generations. It was his, and he, he was willing to give that up to testify to one thing, and that's that he believed in the resurrection of Jesus. What, what could possibly explain that? Well, it's because a dead man became alive. That's the whole point here. He would be unwilling to do something like that unless it was that this man Jesus really did raise from the grave, and he was really empowered by the Holy Spirit to be changed in his heart, to value the community of believers more than he was valuing his inheritance, his savings, his, uh, his prestige as a landowner at this time. The resurrection was changing everything, and there was not a needy person among them. This is generosity. This is selflessness. This is love and sharing that only the Holy Spirit could be doing in them. And what we've seen up until this point is, is that Satan was attacking uh, Jesus during his life. Satan was attacking the early church from without. But what Satan ends up doing with Ananias and Sapphira is attacking from within. In fact, this is the first recorded sin that we have inside of the church. 
This is that's kind of an important note. And in that way, there's something about it that reminds me of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. I've already mentioned Adam and Eve, but let's read, that with, uh, let's read it with that in mind. Verse 1, Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Does this seem like a pretty severe response from Peter? I I think it does. If it were me and I was standing next to Peter, I'd kind of be like, that seems pretty, uh, I don't know, it doesn't really seem to match up. These people gave a lot of money, it seems like. Uh, They just laid it at your feet. This seems maybe even a little ungrateful. What what is it that's going on here? Peter, I believe, uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit, but we don't know. Maybe Peter just knew what the land had sold for. Maybe he was told, but Peter is recognizing what's actually happening here, and he recognizes it as a demonic attack. He says, why does Satan, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So right there, Peter is actually acknowledging this is something spiritual that's happening. And it's not happening to me. I don't need the money, Peter is saying. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie, not to me, but to the Holy Spirit? Satan is at work here. He's attacking the early church, and he's attacking it, maybe for the first time that we can see in Scripture, from within, not from without. It's important. Satan is moving against the early church in the same way that he always does, by deceiving, by lying. So let us be specific about what was happening here. It's not that Ananias and Sapphira were not giving the full amount. They could have given the full amount in sin, honestly. They could have not given anything in sin. But they were free in some way to do uh, what they would. Peter even says um, that the problem is not that you are keeping back the proceeds. Uh, Peter says in, chapter, uh, in verse 4, the land was yours when you had it. The proceeds were yours when you sold it. What's the problem? The problem isn't that they're not giving all things. The problem isn't that they were rich and that they had land. The Lord has given uh, to us richly all to enjoy. There's no gospel of poverty here. You're not going to earn your salvation by selling this land. You, you had it, Peter said. You could have kept the proceeds, Peter said. What Peter is saying here and what he's identifying here is what was happening in their heart. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. When Peter says that he contrived a deed, there's almost just this conspiracy language that was uh, being used, and we get this idea that this was no small thing. In fact, if you didn't get that from that word, certainly by them keeling over and dying on the spot at their feet, no small thing, because everybody's sitting here giving things at the feet of the uh, apostles, and now Ananias dies at their feet. He says, you have not lied to men, but to God. And then he fell down and breathed his last. 
Why was this worthy of death? I want you to think about it for just a moment. I'm going to tell you, but don't wait for me. Why was this worthy of death? Here's here's my, my best thoughts on this, is that it was spiritual hypocrisy. Spiritual hypocrisy. Let's, let's unwrap that a little bit. Ananias and Sapphira were trying to buy spiritual credibility. They were uh, deceiving others to look spiritually mature. Their covetous scheme was not for the money, but for the spiritual status. The deceptive impression that they wanted to leave on the others was that they had spiritual character. Their self-elevation was of their spiritual condition. They were trying to look like something they weren't. Does that start to sound familiar to you? Because what it sounds like to me is what the Pharisees were doing all along, what the spiritual leaders of the day were doing all along, those whitewashed tombs, Jesus called them. He, he called them whitewashed tombs because they were, uh, they were literally painting the outside of tombs white, but what was inside was death. That's what it reminds me of. It reminds me of those Pharisees that heaped up empty phrases standing on street corners. Why? Jesus said to be heard for their many words. They were acting spiritual, but inside there was death. It was those who smeared ashes on themselves when they fasted so that other people knew how spiritual they were being. They did these things to obtain glory for themselves from man rather than from God. And that's why Jesus detested them. Maybe more than anything else, Jesus makes very clear that he does not like spiritual hypocrisy. He does not like spiritual hypocrisy. In fact, I would go as far as to say that Jesus hated the Pharisees' spiritual hypocrisy. Why? Because it was the exact opposite of the gospel. It was diametrically opposed to the gospel. Because the gospel is not that the gospel is for you because you are spiritually rich. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. And instead, the Pharisees were saying, blessed are the rich in spirit, for ours is the kingdom. It was fake righteousness. Fake righteousness. So, millennials, there's a lot of us in here, right? A lot of millennials in here. We get a bad rap for a lot of things. I'll be honest with you, not a huge fan of our generation. I'm not sure that there are lots of people that are huge fans of their generation either. Not a huge fan. But I will say this. Here's one of the things that I love about millennials. We really, really value genuineness and authenticity. I don't know if you've noticed that. I mean, there are some ways in which we don't. We could make long lists both ways. But for some reason, there's like a desire to be very authentic, very genuine with what's going on. I have some feelings that I want to share with you, said no one in the 1800s. Not one person. We, we got lots of feelings. We want to share them with you. We want to be open. We want to be honest. We want to be vulnerable emotionally with one another. I think that Jesus really valued genuineness and authenticity, so much so that when it came especially to spiritual things, he really detested it if you weren't being open and honest. If you were 
a leper, if you were a tax collector and you were willing to be honest, if you were willing to be repentant, Jesus would go to your house. He would spend time with you. If you wanted to look spiritual when all that was inside was death, Jesus didn't only not want anything to do with you, he'd call you out on it. He'd condemn you for it. Righteously, he would do that. Verse 7. Then we see that Sapphira comes in. After Ananias has uh, died, she's not aware of it. She comes in about three hours later. Uh, she doesn't know anything about what's happened. And she comes in, and Peter says, Hey, uh, Sapphira, tell me, did you sell that land for so much? She says, Yeah, so much. Peter asks, Why is it that you have conspired together? Why have you conspired together? He recognizes what, they, uh, the, what the first and second verse told, tell us, and that's that Ananias and Sapphira had already worked this out. They had already worked out what they wanted to do with the land, what they wanted to do with the money, and why they were doing it. it it's really interesting because the parallel then with uh, Adam and Eve is that they were kind of conspiring also. This idea of like sacred marriages, I, I, you know, I, first of all, Big fan of marriage. I love my marriage. I love your marriage. I hope that it thrives. Here's the truth. We accept one another's sin. We conspire for one another. Sometimes subconsciously, there's nothing sacred about the things that just happen within a marriage. There are plenty of ways that we agree to accept sin or that we invite conspiracy for sin, that we all accept this sin in you if you'll accept my sin in me. It's kind of a weird thing that we do. In fact, sometimes I've been, I've been uh, uh, tempted every once in a while to, uh, when I really want to know something and I don't want like the varnish thing. I go like, hey, what, was the con- what did you and your wife say on the car ride home? That's what I actually want to know. I don't want to know your like summary of it. I want to know what are the words that you used? Why? Because the, these uh, little pockets of openness and vulnerability sometimes include conspiracy to sin. And here we find this in Ananias' and Sapphira's marriage. How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord and then immediately, look at it, the word immediately, she dropped to the floor and breathed her last. Here's what we find here. There is a high cost for glory seeking. There's a high cost for glory seeking. We're going to deal with this idea, so I really want you to internalize it. I want you to memorize it. There is a high cost for glory seeking. This couple had conspired to deceive, not to get uh, glory to Jesus, but to get glory from man. Does this seem like an overreaction to you? If I'm being honest, I would say it does seem like an overreaction. I, I have done, this is maybe one of the reasons why we read this passage, and it is quite a fearful thing for us, is because I've done things exactly like this. It may not have been money, probably was money at some point in time, but it may have been that I gave my time to someone because I wanted to look more spiritual than I was. I wanted to uh, pray a certain way because I wanted people to think that I was more spiritual than I am. I you know, rounded off some corners of the truth because I, I'm just not quite 
interested in you knowing exactly who I am and being quite that vulnerable and quite that exposed. The reason why this is fearful is because I see me in Ananias and Sapphira. I wonder if you do too. And so we want to take away from it. We want to go like, God, why, why would you kill him on the spot? This seems really severe. Why are you being so severe? And it wasn't just us. I want to remind you that at that time, perhaps the reason why it was so terrifying to us is because they were, the early church, it says twice, right after Ananias died, right after Sapphira died, everybody who heard of these things, what did it inspire in them? Fear. Now, I I don't think that it was like an ungodly fear. I think it was like a reverent fear. It's like, that's how holy God is? That's how righteous He is? That to keep a little bit of money back is something that is like an affront that's worthy of your life? That's right. There is a high cost for glory-seeking. We need to understand why Jesus took the Pharisees' hypocrisy so seriously and it's because hypocrisy is deathly dangerous. It is deathly dangerous. Hypocrisy everlastingly endangers the soul, and God knows it. Because hypocrisy is hidden by its nature. It's hard to see, and it works like leaven throughout the entire lump of dough, not just for Ananias and Sapphira, but at this point for the church. Hypocrisy is so deathly dangerous because it diminishes the power and testimony of the church. Hypocrisy endangers our testimony to this world. And I think we know it. Like right now, right now in politics, our group, evangelicals, uh, we're being lambasted right now for being hypocritical. And there are a lot of different voices that are saying, here's what hypocrisy looks like. We need to take those things very seriously. From the right, they're saying, how could evangelicals possibly think about voting for people that want to uh, terminate pregnancies in the womb to abort a human life? And we've got to, at some point, at some point, look ourselves in the mirror and say, in all reality, am I being hypocritical to say out of one side of my mouth, God made every human being in his image, they have infinite worth and dignity, and then go and cast a vote for maybe a party that supports policies that ends and terminates hundreds of thousands of lives. We've got to take that kind of hypocrisy really seriously. We've got to take the the charges from the left as well that sit down and say, how could this group of people say that they are for marriage, for dignity, for love, for encouragement, for kindness, for uh, love of neighbor, and possibly get behind people or a person that couldn't be anything more than the personification of the exact opposite of those things. And we've got to take that seriously. I'm not telling you how to vote. I don't even know how you should vote. That's the honest truth. I have no idea. What I can tell you is that I listen to faithful evangelical Christians saying one thing, and I go, yeah, I really agree with that. Piper's article came out this week, and if you haven't read it, it's wonderful. 
I don't even agree with the whole thing. Very few times that I don't agree with the piper. But here's the truth. It was challenging to me. It was challenging. Go read it. I read that and I go, man, I think that that's right too. It's really hard. Why? Because Christians should have nothing to do with hypocrisy. We should be living in an entirely different kingdom. Hypocrisy is deathly dangerous and it diminishes the power and testimony of the church. Hypocrisy is deathly dangerous because the roots of hypocrisy go deep and they cause chaos and confusion over the identities that we have. Is our, uh, is our identity solely in Jesus Christ or is it in some kingdom that I'm building here? Is it in some glory that I'm seeking from you? It's deathly dangerous. D hypocrisy is deathly dangerous because it deceives, it lies, and otherwise obfuscates the truth, the truth of the gospel. Here's the point. Hypocrisy ends in spiritual death. And that's precisely why the Holy Spirit is severe with Ananias and Sapphira. Hypocrisy will kill your soul. It will ruin and cause chaos and confusion. That's why the Holy Spirit is severe. In the context of death, in the context of the death of Ananias and Sapphira specifically, is the building up of the church and the preserving of the church. The Lord refines and reproves and uh, purifies and disciplines His church. 1 Peter 4 verse 17 says this, that judgment must begin in the house of God. Why? Because God hates the sins of the saints because they corrupt his church and that is deathly serious to God. This is why Jesus isn't shy when he is here to identify sin and condemn sin and call to repentance. Do you, do you know what the first instruction to the church is? Do you know what Jesus' first instruction to the church is? It can be found in Matthew 18. Do you know what Matthew 18 is? It's the specific instructions of how the church is to relate one to another in our sin. Brother, I see this sin in your life. I think you need to repent of it. When was the last time you heard that conversation? That person's not listening. Hey, we have to go to our brother to and say, hey, we see this sin in your life. We want to call you to repentance. Why? Because we're mean, because we're getting some sort of like ego trip from it. Uh, why are we doing that? No, we're, we're not doing that. It's because we love that person and we don't want them to spiritually die. And when that person doesn't repent of that sin, they go then to the elders and then to the body and they put them out of the body. Can you imagine? I've been involved in church discipline before, putting people out of our body. Do you know how unnatural and unkind and unloving that feels? It feels all of that and more. Unless what Jesus says is that sin will kill you. And then if we don't do this, we don't obey him, that person can die an everlasting death. That's heavy. At City Church, we ought to be doing uh, Matthew 18 all the time. 
We ought to not have that spiritual glory seeking in us, that desire for other people to like us and to love us, that people pleasingness, hem us in from actually wanting to go and see more glory in other people's lives. I, I pray that the city church would be the kind of place that practices Matthew 18. I do. Because it's serious. Ultimately, glory-seeking for self will be hypocritical. If you're glory-seeking for yourself, it will be hypocritical because you don't deserve the glory. And ultimately, hypocrisy is always self-seeking of glory. Hear me, O church. I'm telling you the truth. I want you to believe it in your heart. Glory-seeking will cost you your life. Glory-seeking will cost you your life. Let me ask you this, because we've focused in on these 11 verses, but it's sitting in a huge context here of what's going on in the rest of the church. Did the hypocrisy or the death of Ananias and Sapphira or the fear that came into all of those people that heard it interrupt God's plans for the early church? Because that's how we kind of deal with it, right? We go, man, that is severe. Maybe God didn't really know how to build his church. Maybe if people started dying here at City Church because they were telling lies and being hypocritical, maybe people wouldn't show up. What is God after here? No, he's after the building up of his church. No, it didn't interrupt his plans. There were astonishing things happening for the glory of God all around them. Look at verse 12. Verse 12, it says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly being done among the people. These amazing, miraculous things were happening all over the place. It says that the apostles were continuing to gather in Solomon's portico, and they were preaching this gospel of the resurrection of Jesus. It says in verse 14 that there were more than ever. Now put that in the context. We just saw several days where there was like 5,000 were added to their number and more day by day. And now it's saying more than ever people were coming into the church. It is likely that there are like tens of thousands of people in the early church at this point. Great, amazing things were happening day by day. Everyone is getting healed, the sick those afflicted with unclean spirits, this passage says. People were just bringing sick people out into the streets so that Peter's shadow could fall on them. That's how mighty and amazing the Holy Spirit was acting with people during this time. It's amazing. People were getting healed just simply by Peter walking by them. How do we know this? Because there, there may be some part of our minds that just go, oh, that's just, they're just saying that. Like, it's, you know, it wasn't really like all of that stuff was happening. Maybe not everyone was. Verse 16 is pretty specific. Look, it says they were all healed. It's pretty extraordinary. Lots of glory happening. Verse 17, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him and filled with jealousy. So what do you think he's after, guys? 
Filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people the words of this life. So, so what's happening here? We see that the jealousy of the high priests and the Sadducees are, are, are like willing to take people's freedom away from them and throw them in prison because they don't like the things that they're saying. What is it that they are after? Can we, can we be honest about this? In the context of all of the rest of this, what are the Pharisees after? What is the high priest after? What are the Sadducees after? They're after glory. They're after glory too. Ananias and Sapphira weren't the only ones in this story who were after glory. These evil men were after glory as well. So what what happens? The apostles, they don't stay in the prison. They leave the prison and they do exactly what the angel of the Lord tells them to do. Verse 25, they go back to the temple and they start preaching. And and the, the next morning, they're nowhere to be found. They're not in the prison and somebody comes and reports this, they go, hey, you remember those guys that we put in the prison yesterday? They're not there anymore. The guards are still there, the doors are locked, but we don't know where they are. And then somebody comes to report immediately after that, I know where they are, they're standing in the temple. You know that place that they got arrested? The place that it would be inconceivably stupid to go back to? They're there, and they're saying the same thing that they were saying the day before. And they say, hey, could you get them and bring them to us? And they're like, yeah. There's a lot of people out there. They're going to stone us to death. These men are like doing miraculous things and people are getting healed. You want us to bring... All right, uh, Peter, could you come this way, please? No, we're not going to... They bring him back and they're charged again. Hey, don't preach in these names. They're, They're so angry, they're willing to put them to death. That's what's happening here. They're so angry that the Pharisees and Sadducees are willing to put them to death because of what they are saying. They are that committed to seeking their own power, their own place, their own prestige, that they're willing to murder other people who have done nothing wrong. And the Spirit of God moves in one man, Gamaliel, and he says, hey guys, do you remember all of these other insurrectionists, these guys? This guy popped up and he wanted to make a name for himself and then he died and you know where those people are? They're nowhere. And then that person, they stepped up and they were trying to form a cult and uh, that person died too and their followers aren't anywhere. This guy that they're talking about died, maybe rose from the grave and uh, if we're going to put them to death, what do you think is going to happen with the next group of people? Listen, Gamaliel says a great piece of wisdom here. If these men die and nothing comes of it, great. But if we kill these men and stuff continues to grow, God's in it. And you don't want to be found opposed to God. That's what Gamaliel says. And, and he saves, I think, in some ways, the life of the apostles. Not that it wasn't the power of the Holy Spirit that was motivating it, but you have one man that stops this glory train, that stops this uh, group of people that's seeking for their... In some ways, you could even argue that Gamaliel was just trying to preserve, in some ways, 
this group of men and this structure of power because evidently there's a mob of people that are willing with stones to maybe start tearing some things down. And he goes, hey, listen, maybe this isn't wise. Maybe we shouldn't go about doing this. But that doesn't mean that just because they were seeking their own glory, it wasn't costly. I want you to think about this. Joseph, Barnabas, the guy at the very beginning, he's giving up his land, his inheritance, his status, his wealth. He's giving up something to not receive glory, but to give it. We see the apostles giving up their freedom, their reputation, being thrown into a public prison. They're giving something up, and they'll do it time and time and time again throughout Acts. Throughout the rest of the epistles, we find out that these men were willing to endure horrific things for the sake of the glory of God the Father. At the end of chapter 5, we find out that these apostles were beaten instead of uh, being killed. They just, it's kind of a funny sentence, actually. They, uh, Gamaliel says, uh, stands up and says, hey, listen, don't do anything with these men. It may not be even necessary. And they're like, okay. And then they beat them and send them on their way. And then the apostles do something very strange. They rejoice. They rejoice in the Lord because they were found worthy to suffer like Jesus suffered. Ultimately, even this sits in the context of the story of God and the rest of Acts where each of the apostles, save John, will die for the sake of the gospel. And even John didn't get it so easy. He was exiled onto uh, the island of Patmos. All of these men suffered. It cost them something. So remember, it's not just Ananias and Sapphira who are going to give their lives for the things that they glorify. Who is it? It's everyone. Glory-seeking will cost you your life. Whether you seek your own glory or whether you seek God's glory, glory-seeking will cost you your life. Uh, Bailey and I were actually like uh, kind of trying to put something together for the kids, a coloring sheet for today, and I was like, you know what we should do? We should do like a fill-in-the-blank. I'll I'll come up, I'll take some statements out of my sermon, and then we'll have the kids like fill-in-the-blank from the sermon and everything, and I was like, this will be great. She asked me, and I sent a text to her, I'm like, "Uh, here's the statements, like here's the words that we should take out. They'll love this, and I sent it to her, and then realized that my statement was, glory-seeking will take your life. Not a kid-friendly, you know, statement, maybe. Uh, You know, there are a lot of things taken out of this sermon that are pretty heavy, okay? It's pretty heavy. If you're a kid in this room, admittedly, this passage, pretty heavy. Glory-seeking will cost you your life. Whether you seek your own or whether you seek God's, it will cost you your life. And how in the world could that possibly be good news? How could it be good news? It's been heavy so far. How could it be good news? Peter wanted to know that same thing. Peter, talking to Jesus in Luke chapter 18, verses uh, 28 through 30, says this, Jesus, see, we have left our homes and followed you. He's saying we've, we've had to give up some things to come and follow you, Jesus. And things are looking kind of bleak. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children. For the sake of the kingdom of God, 
who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. Peter says, Jesus, we've given up so much to come and follow you. And Jesus goes, you haven't even started. You you don't even know what's coming, Peter. You're going to be jailed. You're going to be beaten. You're going to be cast out. You're going to be uh, demonized by people. You're going, to be, you're going to have lies spread about you. And ultimately, Peter, you are going to end up crucified, but not exactly like me. You're going to count yourself unworthy to die like me. You're going to actually, according to church tradition, get crucified upside down, Peter did. There's a lot more than leaving a house to follow Jesus. And Jesus says, it's not for nothing. It'll, it'll cost you your life. It will cost you your life, but if you are seeking not your own glory, but if you are seeking to glorify me, you will have many, many times more in the age to come that is eternal life. Jesus says this to you this morning. He says it to you in Matthew chapter 16, verse 25. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And I wonder when we hear things like that, if you've weighed the high cost of glory-seeking. Have you weighed it out? Have you thought about how much following Jesus is costing you or might cost you? Have you done the math? Because glory-seeking always leads to death. But the question is, If glory-seeking always leads to death, is what you are glorifying stronger than death itself? If you're going to give your life for what um, you are glorifying, whether that's yourself, whether that's your spouse, whether that's your kids, whether that's your uh, brothers, sisters, mother, Jesus doesn't really care what he's asking you to do. If you're willing to give that up, have you, have you asked whether or not the things that you glorify are stronger than death? Because here's what Philippians chapter 2 says. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the other's interests. Have this mind among you, which is yours in who? In Jesus Christ, who, through, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Do you hear what is being said there? Um, though Jesus was due all glory, he decided, I'm not going to glorify myself. This equality with God, it's not something that I'm going to reach out and take. It's not something that I am going to grasp at. For though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God the Father a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. He gave away his glory. How? He humbled himself by becoming obedient. Obedient to who? Obedient to the Father. He humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus did not seek his own glory, beloved. The gospel that we believe in, 
The gospel that we believe in does not say that you uh, glorify something in a vacuum, that you are called to something that the God of this universe has not done first. Jesus gave away his glory. He sought to glorify the Father, and in this way, he is our example And what happens here? What happens after Jesus decides, I'm going to glorify God the Father through my humble obedience, even to the point of death, even to death on a cross? This is what happens. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is this glorious exchange that is happening here. Philippians 2 instructs believers to live selfless lives, not for their own accord, but just like Jesus, they are to be glory seekers, glory givers to Jesus. And he does all of it such that he might not just receive that name that is above every name, but that he might give us that glory, that he might share with us that glory. Jesus is explicit about this in John chapter 8. If you want to know how Jesus is our example in this glory seeking, he says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. Here's the point. Here's the last kind of line for us this morning. You will give glory to something. You need to know, is that thing that you are glorifying stronger than death? Because Jesus is. And and here's here's the pattern for us this morning, if if you've missed it altogether, that self-glorification is life unto death, but living to glorify the Father is life unto death into life. Precisely because that's what Jesus did. This this message of the resurrection of Jesus that the apostles are being uncompromising on is the thing that tells us precisely why he is worthy of our glory. And it also tells us how we can receive glory. The good news of the gospel is not just that all of our glory goes to something and then terminates there. It's not that we live a life unto death glorifying whatever we might. It's that in Jesus, if we glorify him, we are glorifying the Father. And if we're glorifying the Father, Jesus is going to give us his glory in the resurrection, and we're going to live in glory forever. Isn't that the most amazing thing that you've ever heard in your entire life? It's unimaginably beautiful. John Piper, I mean, has built his entire career on this idea of Christian hedonism. It's this idea that, like, if you, want, uh, if you want goodness and pleasure, follow Jesus. Not because it's always the most pleasant thing that you will ever do, but because in doing so, you will receive pleasures forevermore. If, you, if your glory-seeking is to give Jesus the glory, he's already died the death for you. He's given you access to the resurrection of life. And then he shares for all of eternity his glory with you. Um, Let's pray that we would believe that this morning.
If you're going to be um, handing out communion, would you go ahead and come forward? I'm going to pray for that while we're at it. God and Father, we, we desperately want to seek the glory of Jesus Christ. We want to live our lives where we are willing to uh, give land and house and relationship, where we are willing to give our bodies, or even our lives, Father, for the glorification of Jesus Christ. First and foremost, because he is worthy. Because he has called us to it. Because obedience to that would be good. But Father, we want to be jealous for more and more glory. We want to confess to you that we do not want the glory in our lives to be terminated in our death, and we certainly don't want to glorify ourselves forever in the end glory of hell. Father, we don't want to do that. We want to experience uh, the pleasures and charms that are in your hands. We want to live life eternal, Father. Father, we do not, we do not want to be glory seekers of ourselves or the things around us, or this world. We want to glorify you. We want to share in the rich inheritance that Jesus so freely gives us in eternity. So Father, we ask this morning that you would honor your Son through our lives. Lord, that you would allow for the Holy Spirit to work in mighty ways, just like the Holy Spirit was working in the early church, and that you would allow for City Church to magnify your name, glorify your name, Lord, that's what we want. So we confess to you all of the ways that we work against that desire. We confess to you and repent uh, of and, and ask that you would help us in our repentance of seeking glory for ourselves and building of our own kingdom. We ask that you would, in your great kindness, um, help us. Help us live lives of glory to your son, Jesus. Father, as we uh, take communion, Lord, we want to uh, be giving glory. Uh, Lord, it was costly um, to seek glory for Jesus. It cost him his life. So we pray over this broken bread. We pray over the, uh, uh, the cup of wine, uh, Lord, that is representative of Jesus' broken body and his shed blood. And we ask you that in taking this this morning, Lord, that we would be identifying with Jesus and his sufferings. And just like the glory-seeking apostles of their day, Lord, that we would uh, um, be identifying in the sufferings of Jesus Christ as we take this communion, Lord, but that we would be rejoicing all the way. Uh, Lord, we love you. We thank you. We ask that you would just uh, um, commence worship in our hearts at these amazing and beautiful truths, and Lord, that we would be enabled to take uh, communion with pure hearts and that we would be able to sing these songs with freedom Freedom in our bones, knowing that we have been relieved of every sin in Jesus Christ, Lord. Uh, so we pray all of these things in his mighty name. Amen.